0: This is the fourth Sunday of Advent. We will be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. Now this is a passage that is just full, it's power-packed not only of events and lessons as we look at our uh, those who have gone in the faith before us, as well as the early days of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, but it's also power-packed in terms of theological meaning and theological lessons for us going forth in the church, too much for us to plumb in a single sermon. So this morning we're going to be focusing mostly on the events, the people involved, how God was using them, and how they are examples to us. Now next Sunday will be Christmas Day. It will be our Christmas celebration service. And then the following Sunday will be the 1st of January, we will be coming back to this passage and really going into the theological meaning and depth of it uh, and lessons for us uh, going forward as God's people. So with that, let's read together Matthew chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they, that is the Magi, should not return to Herod, They departed for their own country another way. Now when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us in all of its richness and meaning and glory and beauty and power. And that you would fill us full, Lord, of your spirit, your strength, your courage, that we would walk with the same kind of faith and courage as we see in Joseph and Mary. And we pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our story picks up right after the Magi. Rulers and kingmakers of the Parthian Empire have paid homage to Jesus, not only as the born king of the Jews, but as their king. And thus, by implication, the king of kings, because they were the kingmakers of the Parthian Empire, and they are there to acknowledge Jesus as the king and their king. And they're acknowledging the one whom Daniel, their fellow magi many centuries before, had seen in a vision. In Daniel chapter 7, it's recorded for us. He saw in a vision one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, not to earth, but to heaven and appearing before the Ancient of Days, who bestowed upon him dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's who, as a little child, the Magi traveled so far to bow down before. And now as the magi start to leave, God warns them in a dream not to return to Herod. You remember that Herod had asked them, being the snake that he was, he asked them to report back when they located the born king on pretense that he would go and honor him as king as well. But now we see the real reason behind Herod's request. He wants to king uh, to kill the born king. Verse 16. But God delivers his only begotten son, Jesus, by having an angel appear to Joseph in a dream. This could have well been on the very night that the Magi departed. The angel says to Joseph in this dream, arise. In verse 13. And the Greek word is urgent. And it basically means, Joseph, get up. Take the child and his mother, flee, run for your lives to Egypt, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the young child to destroy him. So Joseph gets up, it's in the middle of the night, and here it's the same Greek word that God just used in verse 13, he gets right up, does not hesitate, the middle of the night, he wakes his wife up to get the child because they're going to have to flee. So Joseph is hurriedly trying to get together supplies however much that he could put on the back of a donkey or a mule leaving room for Mary and the child to ride. And then they're going to leave in the wee hours of the night, in the middle of the night they're going to leave the town of Bethlehem probably being just as quiet as they could be. So nobody knows they've gone. Nobody knows where they've gone. It doesn't put anybody else in that kind of danger. Now Egypt was forty miles away south of Bethlehem. Bethlehem's about seven or eight miles south of Jerusalem, and then the border of Egyptian territory was another forty miles to the south. But and that doesn't sound like much to us. Forty miles is not much to us. But for them you've got to understand that was a two-day journey. Because they measured a day's travel by how much a laden donkey or mule could walk in eight hours of actual physical walking. That was considered a day's travel. So it's two days travel by normal measures just to the border of Egypt. But the thing is... Joseph is not going to just get over the border of Egypt in the desert and try to camp out there when he has a young mother, when he has a young child, and he's hiding from Herod's soldiers. He's going to go to some kind of a town or city in Egypt and probably one that would have some kind of a sizable Jewish community so that Joseph has others to help him set up a home. He's got others that he can look to to give him business because he's going to have to support his family. And so many scholars have suggested that he would have likely headed to Alexandria because Alexandria had a very large Jewish community there, synagogues, and Joseph and Mary would have support and help setting up a household. Joseph would have others to look to to uh, ply his carpentry trade and support his family. But here's the thing. Alexandria was over 300 miles from Bethlehem. That's two weeks Journey in that time. The point is whether they went to Alexandria or someplace else in in Egypt, what God is calling Joseph to do here is not a minor inconvenience. Get up, Get get the mother, get the child, get what you can get, flee to Egypt and stay there. Herod is going to try to destroy him. Joseph has to take all of this on himself. And we see him getting up and responding right away. Because when Herod learns the Magi have departed without reporting back to him, he is furious. And so because he cannot identify and kill the one baby boy who is the born king, he decides he's going to cast a wide net to make sure he kills him. He's going to have all the baby boys in Bethlehem and its districts surrounding all of them from two years old and down are going to be put to death. And that gives us an idea of the timing. Jesus could have been as much as a a year old at this point, but Herod is going to make sure he catches this born king in his net. So what we're talking about here is Roman soldiers bursting in every home in Bethlehem and surrounding, bursting in any little boys who were two years old or under are just being grabbed and run through with a sword right there in front of their families. They didn't ask permission. They didn't need permission. And so that is what is happening. And so you can imagine the kind of horror and shock and grief that was all throughout Bethlehem and its surrounding districts. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus travel to Egypt until Herod dies. Now, the best scholarship we have right now indicates that Jesus would have been born in about 2 B.C., perhaps in very late 3 B.C., but Herod died in about 1 B.C. So they could have been in Egypt anywhere from a couple of months to as much as a year but when herod dies once again an angel appears to joseph in a dream and says the same thing get up and it's the same word as before wake up get up go to the land of israel for those who sought the young child's life are dead verses 19 and 20 but as joseph thinks about it and and they're probably on their way back He's afraid to go to Bethlehem or to Jerusalem because they're in Judea. Because he hears that while Herod the Great is dead, his son Archelaus is now ruling on the throne of Judea. And while he wasn't as bad as his father, Herod, he was almost as bad as his father. There was one incident where Archelaus killed around 3,000 Jews in the temple precincts at the time of Passover because he suspected them of fomenting rebellion against him. So he was capable of being extremely ruthless and bloodthirsty. And so Joseph is afraid to go to Judea. And then his fears are confirmed by another dream from God, telling him to stay out of Judea. So he goes, he bypasses Judea. He either travels through it or he bypasses it through the desert and goes around it. But Galilee is up north of Judea. So he's going to have to travel all the way up to the north. Now, Galilee at that time was ruled by another one of Herod's son called Herod Antipas. And none of these guys are good rulers But Herod Antipas was not as bad as his brother Archelaus. So Joseph heads to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is about 80 miles north of Bethlehem. So that was a a typical four-day journey in that time. Um, But it was 120 miles north of the Egyptian border. And if they did, in fact, go all the way down to Alexandria, it's 380 miles. The point is That's like 18 days of journey at that time. These are not small things. These are major disruptions that Joseph and Mary are undertaking in obedience to the Lord. So let's think about these events and what lessons that we can take away from them today. I think there's a lot of different lessons, but I just want to point out three major ones. The first thing is... Note how Jesus, the Son of God, the one born to be king of kings, had to be protected by other people. The fact that he was fully God, God the Son incarnate, he was Emmanuel, God with us, that didn't change the fact that he's also fully one of us in every way except for sin. He came into this world just like we did. He came into this world as a helpless baby. He came into this world as one for whom everything had to be done. He's completely dependent on his parents to care and for and to protect him. And that's why you see, as in the story we have before us, the story of the early days of Jesus are really the story of his parents because the little baby can't do anything has to be cared for. So it's the story of how God, through Joseph and Mary, are protecting and caring for Jesus. And this is something that is astounding about God becoming one of us in order to save us. You see, that was a scandal in the ancient world. That idea was a scandal. The idea that God would have any kind of connection with the creation, but certainly that he would become one of us. Uh, and if you think about it, I don't know if you've thought about this before. If you thought about the fact that God the Son, eternally with the Father in the Spirit, God the Son became part of our bodied race forever. There's never going to be a time going forward in which God the Son is not one of us. That's an astounding thing. And so in the ancient world, the idea that God would do something like that was a denial of his godhood. It was a denial of his divinity. He simply wouldn't do that. But the Bible keeps telling us over and over, no, that's who God is. That's who he is. And so it's not inconsistent with his divinity. It's not inconsistent with his godness for him to become a helpless baby in this way so that he could go to the cross on our behalf. None of that is inconsistent with the godness of God. It is, in fact, an outworking of the godness of God. It's an outworking of the character and the love shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally. It's not just something that he did. It is who he is. And so it's astounding to see how God brought the Savior and King of the world here to save us. None of this was too much. None of this helplessness, none of this humility, being born in a poor family, none of this was too low for God to bend to come and save us. Secondly, let's note how God worked these miraculous events, these, these world-changing events through ordinary people, saved sinners just like us. sinners who fall short in everything they do. Believers, yes, Godly yes, but still save sinners just like us. Think about it. God could have sent angels to protect Jesus. God could have sent angels to stop Herod, but he doesn't. He uses ordinary people, an ordinary man, An ordinary woman. So we should never take for granted the ordinary, the things that have to take place every day. That's where over 90% of life is lived. It's just ordinary things. Getting up, preparing breakfast, uh, getting the kids up, getting the kids dressed, getting the kids fed, going to work, uh, providing for a family. Of teaching the kids, bringing them up in the face, teaching them to read, teaching them uh, in school consistent with the word of God, all of these normal routine things that we think of, of as being very mundane and humdrum, it's easy for us to think, well, how could there be any real glory or power in those things? Well, look, look at how God was working here. In these events on which hung the destiny of the world. Through ordinary redeemed sinners in ordinary life taking care of ordinary duties. It was something that when God brought about the great revival that he did through the Protestant Reformation some 500 years ago. One of the things that happened from that is that the Christians their eyes were open to the glory of God in ordinary life. That's why so much of the art that we see following the Protestant Reformation would be what they call still life. It would be of a a table in a simple cottage with a loaf of bread on it and some cheese on it and and some wine on it. Or it would be a, a portrait of not some royal person, but of a servant girl. It was just the ordinary things, or it would be a picture of fishing vessels that they would go out in daily to make their daily catch and feed their families, just this ordinary stuff because their eyes were open to see the glory of God in the little things, the mundane things of life. That's where God does the vast majority of his work. It's in these ordinary mundane things that we have to do over and over and over every single day. And we need to never forget this. Joseph and Mary were never famous in their day. They were never, quote, important in the normal way that we would think of that. They were never wealthy. They were never powerful. None of the things that we would look at to say these were really significant, important people who made a difference in the world. But look at the difference they made. This is the destiny of the world that hinged on them obeying God and trusting him in these events. And finally, thirdly, let's look at this man, Joseph. Now, we looked a little bit at him two weeks ago. But I want to look at him again because he's featured once again for us. God is constantly appearing to him in the middle of the night in dreams. The first time we saw it, God is appearing to him by an angel in the middle of the night telling him to take Mary to himself as his wife. Because remember, she showed up pregnant, which in the rest of the history of the world means that she had to be unfaithful to Joseph. He's trying to figure out what to do. Same thing. God appears to him in the middle of the night. He says, take Mary to you as your wife. And it has the same kind of urgency. In other words, it's not, okay, get around to it. No, take her. And we know that it tells us Joseph wakes right up and he goes right about it because we saw the fact that she's pregnant, she's showing there's going to be shame and disgrace upon her. Now, we know she's innocent because of the trials of the Holy Spirit. But the shame and, and uh, is going to be upon her. The only thing Joseph can do about it is to marry her, which means that the same kind of people who would be talking and, 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 uh, about her obvious unfaithfulness, now they're going to assume that it was Joseph who's the father, And Joseph is the one who has violated her. So the shame is going to come on him. And we see a picture of Christ. He takes the shame off of her by taking it on himself. That's what God calls him to do. And here we have two more times of God appearing to Joseph in the middle of the night in a dream saying, Get up. Grab your family and go. And so on the surface, there's so many differences between this Joseph and the famous Joseph of the Old Testament, the one who was sent to Egypt, just like this Joseph, and, and who was there and through whom God worked to shape the destiny of the world. But that Joseph is so different on the surface. That Joseph became the ruler of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. He was famous. He was powerful. He was wealthy. He is somebody that we would say obviously is very, very important. And this Joseph on the surface just seems to be so different. But we have a pattern in the New Testament of God um, Having somebody who is coming in the spirit and the power of somebody who has already come in the Old Testament and yet in so many ways looks different. Consider John the Baptist and the Old Testament prophet of Elijah. I bring this up because the New Testament tells us expressly that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 God prophesied, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And then when an angel appears to John the Baptist's father to be Zacharias and tells him he's going to have a son, his wife was barren her whole life. They're now elderly. But he's saying she is miraculously going to have a son. He tells him he will go before the Messiah and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make a people prepared for the Lord. Jesus himself said that John the Baptist was Elijah who was to come. If you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come, Matthew 11, verse 14. And yet, outwardly, John the Baptist was so different from Elijah because if you go back and read the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, what stands out? Miracles. God was constantly working these mighty miracles through Elijah that is what characterized his ministry and yet the new testament tells us expressly John 10 verse 41 John worked no miracles John performed no signs zero how could he be like Elijah how could he be in the spirit and power of Elijah well we see that all of that miracle working power that God showed through Elijah was all bottled up, as it were, and came out in the preaching of John the Baptist. So he's like Elijah, same spirit and power, only different on the surface. And it's the same thing with Joseph and his Old Testament namesake. God repeatedly speaks to this Joseph in dreams just like he did with the Old Testament Joseph. God sends Joseph to Egypt under difficult and dangerous circumstances, just like he did with the Old Testament Joseph. God uses Joseph in his journey to Egypt to preserve the life of his chosen ones, just as he did with the Old Testament Josephs. So we need to not get deceived by the more surface-level details. One Joseph is famous and powerful and wealthy. This new one is not famous. He lives in obscurity. He's never wealthy. He's never powerful. But we need to look at, number one, the faith, the character, the obedience, and also how God used them. The Old Testament, Joseph was characterized by his trust in God no matter what the circumstances, and his obedience to God no matter what the circumstances. And that is the same thing that we see in the New Testament, Joseph. God is constantly calling him to get up in the middle of the night and to take some real hardship upon himself. And we always see this implicit faith from Joseph. There's never any complaining. There's never any back talking. He's never asking for any proof or any signs. He's never doing any of that. And we always have this instant obedience, this instant assumption that if God has called him to do something, then God is going to give him the ability to do it in his grace and providence. And so we see Joseph just going right at it. And we see characteristics here of true Biblical masculinity. this is what it looks like men also ladies if you're if you're growing up and you're going to be looking for a husband, okay, many ladies um, are looking for a man with a scintillating personality and things like that. and yes, God has made a few men, ladies who have scintillating personalities, not a lot, but a few um, and and that's wonderful. And that's but I want you to know that's icing. That's icing on the cake. The icing is great, but you gotta have a cake to put it on. And the cake is what you see in Joseph here. Notice the characteristics of true biblical masculinity. No complaining. There are certain sins you see that are sins for all Christians and all people, but they also have the added demerit of being. Unmasculine. There's other sins which are sins for all Christians which have the added demerit of being unfeminine. Complaining, in addition to being sin, it says in Philippians, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Parents, can I hear an amen? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. That's across the board to all Christians, but in addition to being sin for any Christian, Grumbling and complaining is distinctly unmasculine. Feeling sorry for himself. We never see Joseph feeling sorry for himself here. Feeling self-pity is sin for any Christian, but it also has the added demerit of being profoundly unmasculine. And so we see true masculinity even in a fallen sinner. This is what it looks like in a fallen sinner In a fallen world, Joseph is continually obeying God implicitly and immediately. And that's really what connects the New Testament Joseph with his famous counterpart in the Old Testament. Now, another thing that can make us kind of overlook the amazing things that God did through Joseph... Uh, The things uh, Mary and her character and her faith come out in more detail in Luke. That's more the focus of Luke. Matthew is more focused on Joseph. But another thing that makes us overlook him is the fact that he's so rapidly out of the picture. Now, we know Joseph was still alive when Jesus was 12 years old because we have the incident where Jesus stays at the temple and he's talking to all the scholars and the rabbis, and then his parents have to come back and get him. That was when Jesus was 12. But by the time Jesus started his ministry at age 30, we know Joseph has died. And it's easy for us to assume that for somebody whose life was that short, I mean, how important could they be? How much of a difference maker could they be? But you see, then we have to apply that same reasoning to John the Baptist or to Jesus himself, both who died in their early 30s. John was Jesus' first cousin. He was about six months older than Jesus. As soon as Jesus starts his ministry, very rapidly, we have John the Baptist being arrested and then being put to death. And how much difference could he make? How important could he be? But Jesus himself said, Matthew 11:11, 11, 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. The shortness of life in God's promise, uh, in God's providence, the shortness of life is not a limit at all in terms of what God can do through the person or how great that person can be in terms of actually trusting in God and obeying God. So let's not let the fact that Joseph has quickly removed from the scene blindness to his greatness as a believing man, a believing husband, and a believing father who lived in obscurity and yet played a critical role in the birth, early life, and raising of the Savior of the world. Think about it. Out of all the men who have ever lived, this is the man that God hand picked to protect and to provide for and to raise his only begotten son. Somebody had to teach Jesus how to talk. Somebody had to teach him how to read. Somebody had to talk to him about the scriptures. All of that didn't happen by magic just because he was God the son incarnate. Joseph was the one handpicked for all of this. And we tend to think certainly... Certainly God would not let the destiny of the world rest on a simple carpenter who was a fallen sinner redeemed just like us. Certainly God would not let the whole world rest on him. But when you think about it, that's exactly the kind of thing that God would do. That's what he did. So he's constantly calling Joseph, Joseph, get up, go, leave, uproot your business, uproot your home, go to this other place, start all over. And we see how God worked, and we are all the beneficiaries. So let us take to heart the encouragement that we get from the great godliness and the faith and the obedience of this man.